Hi all, and welcome to a landmark episode of Ecolution. Since the show began, we focused on biodiversity, the importance of nature in our lives, and why it's vital we respect and take care of the beings that we share this planet with. And today we meet someone who has dedicated their entire life to just that. A scientist, a conservationist, a peacemaker and a personal hero of mine, Dr Jane Goodall, welcome to Ecolution. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's lovely talking with you. It's really our honour. It's one of my childhood dreams. It's amazing. So just to set things up for today, we put a call out to young people across the country, many of them in schools that are part of the Irish School Sustainability Network, and they came back with so many questions that I'm not sure we'll get through them all. But are you okay to give it a go? Yes, all ready to go. I'll mix in some questions from me too, but let's start with one about your early life. Aaliyah, who's 10, asks... What pets did you have growing up? I had a dog, a wonderful dog, who really made a big impact on my life. I had a cat, or with a family cat. I had two guinea pigs, Gandhi and Jimmy. Jimmy turned out to be Mrs. Jimmy because she had babies. I had a golden hamster, Hamlet, who lived in a hole that she made in the sofa. I had two rescued tortoises and a rescued slow worm. Wow, busy household, all the the pets. Could I ask something that's from me? I'm a young person who cares about the environment. Like our listeners, I do all I think I can. But where did you find the bravery in the same position to set out alone for Tanzania when you were so young? Well, because I grew up loving animals. And when I was 10, I read Tarzan of the Apes. There was no television when I was growing up. So I fell in love with Tarzan. I was really jealous. He married the wrong Jane. But I decided then and there at 10, I will grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals, and write books about them. I never thought of being a scientist. And everybody laughed at me. How will I do that? Africa's far away. You don't have money. True. And you're just a girl. Different for girls in those days. But my mother said, if you really want to do this, then you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity, And if you don't give up, hopefully you find a way. Anyway, I finally got to Africa, as you know. It wasn't brave. It was my childhood dream. It was coming true. And how incredible that I was asked by Dr. Lewis Leakey not to go and study just any animal, but the one most like us, the chimpanzee. And those were the best days of my life. Wow, that's just incredible. I I can't believe it. As you're so famous for the work you've done in the Gombe Stream National Park, Lots of the children's questions are about that, so we'll focus on these first. So, from Claire in Clare Hens National School in County Tipperary, as well as Aaliyah and Georgia from Dublin. Why didn't you choose to study chimpanzees? Why not? Monkeys are Well, I didn't. I would have studied any animal, and it was Dr. Lewis Leakey. He believed that about six million years ago, there was a chimp-like, human-like common ancestor. And he felt that if I studied our closest living relative, then he would be better able to understand some aspects of human behavior. Wow. Rosa, who's seven and from North Strand, asks, What was it like to see your baby chimp make a spoon out of two twigs? The first chimpanzee I saw using tools was an adult male called David Greybeard. And because at that time, Scientists thought that only humans could use and make tools. And because David was not only picking grass stems, but he sometimes picked a leafy twig and took the leaves off, then he was using and making tools. And that was what 
got everybody so excited. It wasn't just humans after all. And that was when the National Geographic came involved and funded my future research. Sophie, who's 10, from Taney Parish Primary School, would like to know... What was your favourite chimpanzee you ever met? My favourite chimpanzee was David Gradient, who first taught me about tool using. But my favourite female was Old Flo, with her large family. And she must have been about 45 when I first met her, or even older. Chimps don't normally live more than 60 years in the world. And, you know, she had raggledy ears from fights and... She was just the most amazing mother and really defended her children. Yeah, she was incredible. That's incredible. This makes me want to go and see chimpanzees. Carl from Clarence again is asking, What was the hardest thing about studying chimpanzees? Well, the hardest thing in one way was getting money for always carrying on with the study. Uh, the other thing is, you know, the forest is sometimes very thick. And the chimpanzees can just easily move through that vegetation. It's much harder for a human, you know, with hair that catches the vegetation and clothes and things like that. The hardest thing was sometimes keeping up with the chimpanzees. I don't know, this is a bit of a silly question, but are chimpanzees fast? They can move very fast. They can run very fast. They can also climb up high in the trees and swing from branch to branch. That's incredible. Doing that too often, but they do it quite often in the rainy season because they don't like their feet on the wet, cold ground. Just <laughs> like us. So, Robin, who's 12, asks Have you ever had any dangerous encounters with the apes or chimpanzees? Well, we had one bully. He was the grandson of old Flo. He bullied other chimps and people. And he especially, I don't know, he was always trying to prove that he was dominant over me. And of course, it's obvious. I mean, he's eight times stronger than me. And he would sometimes grab me and drag me and sometimes stamp on me, which wasn't particularly nice. But um, he didn't want to really hurt me because he could have done so easily. I would have been so scared, but you really, you're so brave for doing it. So, Dr. Goodall, you're someone who's fought hard to safeguard the habitats that the animals live in, in Tanzania. But I know it's not been easy. How is it, do you think, that we've sidelined nature so much in the past 100 years? Well, unfortunately, you know, we humans are a part of the natural world and we depend on it for food, for water, for clean air, everything. And somehow there's been this crazy idea that all around the world we can have higher and higher economic standards of living. But unfortunately, the planet has only finite natural resources, and we're raiding them too fast. We've gone away from the thinking of the indigenous people. They used to make a decision only after asking, how will this decision affect future generations? And we don't do that now. We tend to, how will this decision affect me now, or my next political campaign, or the stocks and shares of my company? We've just gone ahead blindly, just taking, taking, taking. And it's got to a stage when we've got to stop this. So at the moment, the EU is debating a nature restoration law that would begin to address the huge losses in biodiversity and wild spaces we've seen. But they're getting huge pushback, with many saying it goes too far and will impact agriculture and food production. How would you respond to this? Well, it's a pretty simple response, really. If we don't stop raiding the bounty of Mother Nature, then more species will disappear, 
more habitats will disappear. And what we have to realize is we humans are not exempt from extinction. We could become extinct if we go on despoiling the environment. So because we're so intelligent, we need to get together and sit down and say, we cannot go on depleting nature like this, because if we do, it's the end of other species and us. So we've got to find a way of living in harmony with nature. And fortunately, more and more organizations are thinking like this and working out ways when we can live, as I say, in harmony with Mother Nature. We just have to readjust. We have to stop farming with all this way that we grow food today with pesticides and herbicides, poisoning the soil, poisoning ourselves even, harming biodiversity. We have to go back to small-scale family farming and what they're calling regenerative farming. We just have to find different ways of living. It was Mahatma Gandhi who said, nature can provide for human need, but not for human greed. And when you think of people who have so much more than they need, why do we need private jet? Why do we need four houses in case we want to go to a different part of the world? Why do we need two or even three cars? We've just got to tone down the unsustainable way of living. And the other thing, which people tend not to think of, We've got to do something about poverty. Because you imagine you're living out like the people near Gombe, and you're too many people for the land to support, and you can't afford to buy food elsewhere, and your land is infertile. So what do you do? You're going to cut down the trees to make some money from charcoal or timber, or to make more land to grow more food, just in order to survive. So we need to do something about poverty on the one hand, and the unsustainable lives of the wealthy on the other hand, and come to a nice middle ground. Brilliant. I love the term living in harmony with Mother Nature. So I'd like to ask, what's the current state of the habitats that sustain the chimpanzees along with countless other creatures in Gombe and beyond? How is your institute working to help nature in the field? There was a time when I first went to Gombe in 1960, that's uh, over 60 years ago, Gombe was part of a great forest belt that went across Africa. But by the late 1980s, when I flew over, I was shocked. I saw a little island of forest that was Gombe, and all around were bare hills. And that's when it hit me that if we don't help people find ways of living without harming the environment, then we can't save chips, forests, or anything else. It got so bad that by the late 90s, chimp numbers had dropped from 150 individuals in Gombe to just under 100. But as we began working with the people, asking their advice, sitting down with them, working out together ways that they could, for example, make free nurseries and sell the seedlings, they could uh, have coffee plantation, improve it and sell the coffee, they could get some chickens and sell the eggs. So anyway, this program developed. And one of the important things was providing scholarships so girls could have the chance of secondary education. And you understand the importance of that. But back then, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, girls very seldom got to secondary school. All the money went for the boys. And it's been shown all around the world that as women's education improves, 
family size tends to stabilize. And so that program works. And if you fly over Gombe today, you won't see the bare hills. The trees have come back. The people understand that saving the environment isn't just to save wildlife. It's also for their own future, for the future of their children. So they become our partners in conservation. And this program is in six other countries where the Jane Goodall Institute studies chimps. And everywhere it's working. Everywhere poverty is getting less, habitat is returning, and chimp numbers are rising. It's amazing to see the impact that the institution can have. So I'm going to go back to the kids questions. So Sive, who's 12 from Dublin, asks, What has been your biggest challenge as a female ethologist? Well, the biggest challenge first, you know, when I first got to Gombe and studied the chimps, I hadn't been to university because we couldn't afford it. But then after two years, my mentor, Dr. Leakey, said that I had to get a degree because he wanted other scientists to respect what I was writing about. Because at first they just said, oh, she's just a girl, you know. So he got me a place at Cambridge University in England to do straight away a PhD. He said, there's no time for an undergraduate degree. I was nervous, obviously. And imagine how I felt when these erudite professors told me I'd done everything wrong. Chimpanzees shouldn't be given names if you're studying them. They should have numbers. That's more scientific. You can't talk about their personality. You can't talk about their minds being capable of solving problems. And you certainly can't talk about their emotions like happiness, sadness, fear. Well, luckily, when I was a child, I had a wonderful teacher. I've mentioned him already. That was my dog, Rusty. So I decided, and I wouldn't confront the professors, but I just quietly went on describing the chimps the way they were. And then my husband, he became my husband. His documentary films showed that what I was saying was true. And so gradually, science attitude has changed. So if you or anybody listening wants to study animal intellect, it's a huge new flourishing research area. You can even study animal emotions and you can even study animal personality. That's so interesting. I've, I've never even heard of that before. It's very eye-opening. So Moya wants to know, if you could pick any other animal to study, which animal would you pick? Hyenas. I've spent a little while watching hyenas. They are absolutely fascinating. I could talk about them for hours, but I won't. Amazing creatures. Okay, this next one is slightly out of left field, but given how much that you've travelled, I think you might have an interesting perspective. Emma Foster, who's 10, asks... Are you proud to be English? Am I proud to be English? Well, I'm not very proud of our government right now, but then there's so many countries around the world right now that I would not be proud to be a citizen of. And also, you know, British history, our colonisation, that's not very nice. And for a while, we were part of slavery, which was horrible. But we've got better. And I would say during World War II, when we only had Winston Churchill to stand up against the might of Nazi Germany that had overrun all the rest of Europe, I was very proud to be English then. Thank you. Anna, who's 14 from Wicklow, asks, What was the hardest conversation we ever had with someone to change their mind? And did they change their mind? <laughs> Well, 
I can't say the hardest because I've had so many, many, many conversations with people about changing their minds. One of the hardest times was, you know, chimpanzees have been extensively used in medical research. And I was shocked to find that there they are, our closest living relatives, and they were in cages that measured just five foot by five foot with nothing in there. You know, I was used to chimps in the wild. So I had to confront the people who were permitting this and encouraging this to happen. So what did I do? Was I aggressive? Did I say, how dare you do this? No, I didn't. I just showed pictures of the chimps at Gombe. And then I showed a picture of a chimp in a five foot by five foot cage alone. I showed pictures of chimps in Gombe playing and socializing. And gradually, because I wasn't aggressive, because I believe that you can never change somebody if you argue with them. They don't want to listen. You've got to find a way to reach the heart. Very often, I find the way to reach the heart is telling stories or showing pictures. And it quite often works. And you know, sometimes you have a conversation like that, and the person you're talking to doesn't seem to change, but you've planted a seed in the heart, and you find later that person actually has made change. So we don't use chimps in medical research anymore. Very good. Good improvements. I'd love to know, how easy in your own experience has it been to make positive change in the world? It depends. Um, <laughs> the way I have made the most positive change, I think, was starting our program Roots and Shoots. I don't know if you know about it, do you? A little. I've, I've read a little bit. How long have you been in the Roots and Shoots program and what is the Roots and Shoots program? Well, you know, I started it in Tanzania in 1991 when I found that young people your age, university, a bit older, were losing hope. And they were either angry or they were just really depressed. Mostly they just didn't seem to care. And when I asked them, this is all around the world, I asked them why they felt like that. And they all said more or less the same. Well, you've compromised our future. You've harmed it. There's nothing we can do about it. So if you believe that your future has been harmed, you're right. It has. And we've been stealing the future of young people like you ever since the Industrial Revolution. But it's not too late to do something about it. So Roots and Shoots began with 12 high school students in Tanzania. And we decided that the most important message would be every single individual makes some impact on the planet every day, and you can choose what sort of impact you make. And secondly, because I discovered in Gombe that everything is interconnected, every one of those species making up the ecosystem has a role to play. So we decided that each group of roots and shoots would choose three projects. They'd choose them themselves, one to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. So today we're in 69 countries. We've got members in kindergarten, even a few preschoolers, but very strong in high school and university. And as I speak to you now, in some countries, they've got their sleeves rolled up, they're planting trees, they're raising money to help refugees, they're volunteering to walk dogs for elderly people who can't get around. They choose their three projects, 
and the imagination is great, and it's my greatest hope for the future, is you young people. And I hope that you, personally, you will get Roots and Shoots going in your school. I honestly, it's, it's incredible, the impact you've had. It's, I'm taken aback, like I'm speechless. You can do the same. You can make an impact, and you just have to remember you make a difference every single day. And it just can be a little thing like smiling at a sad person. You lift their spirits. You've made a difference, and it's a good difference, you know? That's beautiful. Thank you. So we're almost there. I hope the questions haven't been too tricky. But now we have a double question from Louis, who's 10, and he wants to know, What's your favorite food? And then the second is, what's your most important discovery? Well, I suppose the most important discovery, to start with that, was tool using and tool making, simply because it helped to change scientific attitude towards animals. Um, they're not just things, they have feelings. And by the way, that includes every single animal who's raised in a factory farm for meat. Every single one of those cows crushed in those tiny sheds, every one of those pigs who depend on their noses crowded into tiny spaces, their tails cut off because otherwise they bite off. They've just got nothing to do. They're really intelligent. You can all look up Picasso, not the artist Picasso, but Picasso on Google. It's an amazing pig in South Africa, and I won't tell you about it. You can look her up. I became vegetarian when I learned about factory farming back in the late 1960s. And then when I realized how milk cows were treated and laying chickens, and you know, then I became more or less vegan as much as I can. Traveling, it's not that easy, but basically. So my favorite food is some kinds of vegetables. I mean, I just love different vegetables like asparagus and broccoli and stuff like that. And now the vegan food, they've made it so taste like non-vegan food. So when I decided to be vegan, I thought, oh gosh, I have to give up cheesecake and cheese. But you couldn't tell now. The vegan cheese is like real cheese. And you can even get vegan cheesecake, which is delicious. <laughs> Brilliant. The advancement in vegan alternatives is actually amazing. Like sometimes I can't even tell the difference. Yeah. Brilliant. So Aoife Troy, who's age 10, wants to ask, What is your favourite book that you've written? That I've written. I think probably the early one in the shadow of man. Because that was, you know, all my first wonder about the lives of the chimps in the wild. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So we're almost finished. So I'd just like to ask a few more quick questions, if that's okay. Where do you find resilience in a world that's changing so much? Well, I find resilience, I mean, mostly I'm an obstinate person. I'm not going to give in. And I will, you know, continue to do what I can to make things better. And I do personally, because I discovered it out in the forest, I believe in a great spiritual power. So sometimes when I'm really, really tired, I just open up my mind and it seems that energy comes to me from up there, whatever up there is. And if I'm giving a lecture right at the beginning, I may feel absolutely exhausted. So I try and draw down strength from that spiritual power. And then during the lecture, the response of the audience, you know, that gives back to me. So it's, it's like a circle. So I get the energy, I give it out, and then it comes back to me. It's incredible. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to give up, you know, I'll be 90 next year. 
Wow, it's, it's incredible. You have such an amazing insight. So where do you feel closest to nature? When I'm out in the, in the rainforest, I feel very, very close to nature. I just love the rainforest or even a woodland, you know, yeah. Brilliant. I'd love to go to a rainforest someday. It's, it's on my bucket list. <laughs> so, Dr. Godot, we are so, so grateful for your time and the thoughtful responses you've had to all these questions. I'm going to end with this. What advice would you have for young people worried about the current state of our planet? Well, I would obviously invite them to get involved in roots and shoots because then it's a growing family around the world. And, you know, we bring young people together, usually virtually, but sometimes actually physically, at least within a country. And they're getting so much inspiration from each other. And because Roots and Toots gives you an opportunity to choose what you do, then sharing what different people do, you get to learn about different problems and different solutions. Also, well, for older people, I would say read the last book I wrote, which is called The Book of Hope. And that really does, from all my own experiences, give people hope that it's not too late, but time is running out and we need to get together and take action. Hope is about taking action, not just wishful thinking. And it's young people like you and all those who are listening now. It's your future. And when people say, Oh, it's the responsibility of the young people. It makes me really angry. It's not your responsibility. It's ours that the world is in a mess. But we need to be there to help and support young people in trying to solve the problems that we've created. And it's not too late, but we do need to get together. And by the way, lots of children are changing the way their parents think. That's very encouraging. Yeah, conversations and community is definitely really good for eco-anxiety and people who are worried. So I'd just like to say thank you for today and above all else, thank you so much for what you've done to fight for our nature and our planet. Have you anything else you'd like to say before we head off? I don't think so, except again to urge you to spread the word about Roots and Shoots in your community if you're talking to more young people. And I only say that because of the hundreds, literally, of letters I've had saying Roots and Shoots changed my life. I cannot thank you enough for starting Roots and Shoots. And the values get passed on so that I have what I call the alumni, the people who went through Roots and Shoots in school and university. Now they're out in the big wide world, but they keep those values of respect and compassion for each other, for other animals and for the environment. Of course, I'll, I'll be sure to spread the word. It's an incredible program. Thank you so much. And you are a brilliant interviewer, so. Thank you. You're a brilliant person to interview. <laughs> We'd like to thank you for all the work you've done and you will help us realise how chimpanzees are smarter than I think I'm going to have to pinch myself. Dr Jane Goodall on Ecolution. We've come a long way. To get more info on how to get involved with the work that she does, simply search for Jane Goodall Roots and Shoots. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome to the party. We have over 70 episodes in our back catalogue, including an episode of Mary Robinson, and we have no plans to stop at that. If you could like, follow or review the podcast wherever you found it, that would really help us. And thanks for sticking with us. Ecolution is produced by Nikki Coughlin and presented by me, Evie Kenny. This time from the Radio Nagel Talk to Studios up here in Donegal Gael Talk. 
Huge thanks to them for their help in this episode. Slán live. If you enjoyed this podcast, RTE Junior has tons of podcasts for kids of all ages. Simply search for RTE Junior Radio and have a listen.